1: Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy Parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, once more, the biggest and most heartfelt thank you from me to all of the listeners who have supported my first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. I'm still completely overwhelmed by your appetite for my saucy story and your love for Violet. I know there are a few more signed copies available at Waterstones, Blackwells and Foils. I've also signed some books for City Books in Brighton, the Big Green Bookshop, the Portobello Bookshop in Edinburgh, the Seven Oaks Bookshop, the Margate Bookshop, Book Bar in Arsenal and a few more. If you'd like one, ask your local indie and I'm sure they can hook you up. And I'm so glad so many of you are enjoying my new sex and love podcast, Daisy is Insatiable. Make sure you don't miss my chat with Dolly Alderton, Intimacy and Bulls, and listen out for my conversation with debut novelist and comedy icon Andy Osho about dating and big sticks. Yes, that's sticks. Now on to today's guest. Simon Doonan is someone you might recognise from TV, especially if you're an America's Next Top Model fan. His memoir Beautiful People was adapted for TV and I fell in love with him on a trip to New York where I stumbled upon his tongue in cheek style guide, Eccentric Glamour, creating an insanely more fabulous you. Simon's latest book is a brief glowing glimpse of Keith Haring, a celebration of creativity and crisis, a snapshot of a period where AIDS was devastating, lives, love and cities, but art was still somehow flourishing. We talked about heartbreak, football Biographers, and the fabulous Dawn Pole in her gin aquarium. I'd love to start by asking you about art. I've loved your wonderful book about Keith Haring, and I'm wondering whether there are any biographies or memoirs or books written about artists or by artists that you have loved?
0: I'm not sure I've read that many. I tend to read, if I read biographies, it's often about music people. I just read the one on Jimi Hendrix called Wild Thing. Wild Thing. And then I just read a Brian Jones one. I I tend to read a lot of musicians, the Keith Richards one, which is great. I don't know if you've read that. It's brilliant. Um, Artists. I'm so old. I've read so many biographies. Like, uh, I remember there's a great one on Luis Bunuel. Does he qualify as an artist? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, artists, weirdly... um, I mean, I guess I've read everything on Andy Warhol, you know, every Warhol book. But I guess art's such a visual thing Mm. that um, there aren't always great ones. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people can be absolutely amazing... But have really quite boring lives. You know, their output can be astonishing, but their lives isn't always that interesting. I think with Keith Haring, the fact that he didn't live that long helps because, you know, it's a rollicking ride. His life—it's like a roller coaster of madness. It's like being stuck in a pinball machine. You know, famous at twenty-five, dead at thirty-one. You know, so I, maybe that's why I gravitate to the musicians because. A lot of them didn't live that long. The herring is of particular interest to me because I love that he is a popular artist. You know, he's he's sort of like a Toulouse Lautrec. Or a you know, he's not like a a Tracy Emin or a or a Damien Hurst who are communicating to a very esoteric audience. Um, I mean, they would probably argue with that and maybe they're right, but his mission was to be a popular artist. I want people to have the art that they deserve. There's never anything about Keith Haring's art that you can't understand. That's why he was able to communicate so well to people. I think that's why he's been so enduring because crack is whack. You know, all the stuff that he did was was messaging to people directly, real people, people in the Bronx, people in Brooklyn, he wanted to communicate with people, because he was a, you know, small town guy from Pennsylvania, and he had a distinctly popular approach, like uh, um, Leroy Neiman, sort of considered a bit naff, um, Leroy Neiman, but he's actually a brilliant draftsman, yeah a lot of artists are very um they're not sort of connected to popular culture in the way that Keith Haring was it's quite astonishing how connected he was to popular culture.
1: I suppose I was thinking about how in your book what is captured so beautifully is it's a moment and there's so much energy and fun and anger as well. But then life
0: is tough like look at Keith Haring's life he's just like many, many of my friends in the 80s, they were just hitting their stride. They were in their 20s, and early 30s, and they all got struck down. It was terrible. It was just absolutely horrifying. I've never really gotten over it. It was so awful to lose all your friends at that age. And, you know, I was one of the lucky ones that for some reason didn't get it. So I walked out of that period. You know, they say, scar tissue makes you stronger. I just think it makes you insane. You know, and like, it was very traumatic to be young and To watch all your friends die so horribly and without any of the kind of support and nurturing you would get today, you know, because it was a disease. AIDS was a disease of sexual shame and blame, and oh well, this is what happens when you people take too much uh, liberty or your freedom, you know. So Keith Haring had to navigate all that, and for a young boy, I mean, there's one that he talks about in his journal where he got his AIDS diagnosis and he went down to the East River and just cried for like six hours straight but then after that he was like okay you know he carried on his incredible resilience his resilience is to me the big takeaway which I wanted to communicate in the book his unbelievable resilience and always optimism and energy and his drive was incredible And he had to deal with so much, especially, you know, his death from AIDS and dealing with that as a very public person Mm. in an era where you really didn't get any much support. You really had to take care of your own emotional welfare. And I do think it's a really moving and important read
1: for now when we are all going through this really... So tough time because that underplays it but also I'm very aware that now this is something that's you know very much in the global news cycle and you know something that I think is so clear from what you've said and written about and what I've read that just shocking and heartbreaking you know the the stigma the the withdrawing of all sort of practical and emotional support to, to the people who needed it
0: the most and then there were bright spots you know I always think about Princess Diana when she went to visit that guy and held his hand and that was a period where people wouldn't go near somebody if they thought they had AIDS and then Madonna was very much you know uh, I describe in the book Madonna bringing her friend Martin Burgoyne who had Kaposi sarcoma which is related to AIDS and like holding him and cuddling him and you know and everybody saw that and um, she sent a very strong message to people that we have to love people who are sick and not disdain them and blah, blah, blah. And so there was bright spots. And in, in the fashion world, especially, you know, Anna Winter, Donna Karanell, Kenneth Cole, all these people stepped up. And, you know, so it did begin, it did begin, but fundamentally on the ground, it was pretty rough.
1: Were there any books that you loved growing up? Or were there any early experiences of reading that have really stayed with you?
0: Well, I was lucky because my parents, they didn't really have a lot of preconceived ideas about child rearing. So basically, I just read everything that was lying around the house. And that can include, you know, the Times, which was very stuffy back then, right through to the News of the World with all the latest salacious gossip about Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice-Davies. And then my dad was a pretty voracious, wide reader. So by the time... I was like ten or eleven, I was reading all the James Bond books. I remember picking up his j P. Dunlevy books and reading them, and they were absolutely filthy and like you know very pornographic and so I was lucky to read very widely and my parents they didn't go to college, but they had they were sort of unconventional, and they would never have occurred to them that I could only read Black Beauty they were like I think they're just happy to see me grabbing things and reading them. So I remember reading Goldfinger and finding it very sort of sexual and crazy and interesting, and Rosa Klebb, and you know, it was also oh, yeah. bonkers to a, a young kid. So yeah, I, I I'm always been a high low reader. I love to read trash and then I love to sort of dig into. Dostoevsky and try and read it you know even if I only get halfway through so I like I like to go high low with books and I think that comes from my childhood when I had access to I wasn't reading Barbara Cartland because it was too sentimental <laughs> it was more edgy stuff hmm. you know pulp and stuff like that.
1: I'd love to know how you felt about James Bond because I know you know you've written about sort of Growing up and, you know, your life and your family and sort of being unconventional. And, I I mean, I think there are certain interpretations of James Bond that are kind of super, super camp. I think it's such a sort of a, a kitschy and cartoonish world much more in the movies than in the books which i think are quite dark did you feel confused by kind of who bond was and whether he was someone that you should try to be like or were you just completely entertained by
0: the story i think little boys just love violence that's just (laughs) it seems to be that way i'm not condoning it in any way shape or form but i was fortunate because my sister sheila she um was sort of feminist from an early age i remember reading the female eunuch you know she had a copy of it And um, my mom was a feminist by default. You know, she always was very tough from Belfast, stuck up for herself, left school very young, 13, 14, but believed that women should get whatever jobs they want. And she did that in her life. She joined the Air Force and became an electrician when women never did that. You know, she was the only woman who became an electrician. Um, So um, I was surrounded by these women who had no problem telling men where to get off. Yeah, I I had a good balance. So I guess probably I saw James Bond as being kind of cartoony and hilarious and sort of sexy at the same time, because then I would go to the movies with my dad. Um, My parents never took us to children's movies. So I, I saw Alfie with Michael Caine and The Ipcrest File with Michael Caine and all the Bond movies I'd go with my dad. The glamour of it and the beauty of Sean Connery, you know, it was like searing itself into my brain.
1: It must have been a very exciting time to be around all this sort of different culture. And as you say, I love the, the high-low, that nothing kind of cared about where it came from and it was just all for you to
0: enjoy. Well, I find sometimes it's really great to read a really poorly written <laughs> hilarious book like I've read a lot of football or autobiographies that were written without any supervision whatsoever you know and they're kind of wonderful in there they just go for it especially the ones that were written in the 90s oh. the last really great piece of trash I read was Down the Rabbit Hole by Holly One of the the girls next door, the bunnies. Yes. That's a good piece of trash. Then there's really good trash, like Scruples. Have you ever read Scruples? Judith Krantz. Yes. So Um. good. Accomplished trash. Um, The Best of Everything, Rona Jaffe. Oh, That's a great piece of pulpy trash, but it's very well written. Tell me about it, because I've I've heard of it. I've heard it mentioned, but I don't really know it. Um, The Best of Everything is about the period in the, I guess, early 60s when women were going en masse in America into the workforce, but as secretaries. So, you know, you would walk down the streets in Manhattan in the morning before work started, and there were just zillions of these young girls Um, roaring down Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, on their way to work in offices. And this was an entry point that women took to get into these corporations. And some of them, like the Joan Crawford character in the movie of The Best of Everything, become very successful. And in The Best of Everything, I think there's four characters, and it shows the struggle of women getting into this new... Um, high, pro, high pressure arena you know I don't want to ruin it for you but one of them kind of offs herself another one can't bear it and goes off and marries and has a conventional life and then one of them wants to be Joan Crawford the successful woman and pays many prices for that it's it's great and it, the film is spectacular it's the most incredible Technicolor movie the best of everything you won't believe the colours and like it's intoxicating.
1: A teenage favourite of mine um, is uh, The Valley of the Dolls. And I've got a friend who recently read it, a friend who is 41, who was sort of came and said, This book is awful. It's horrible what happens to these women. It's just heartbreaking. It's just so bleak. And you know, when I read it, when I was sort of wide eyed and I think I had a much greater appetite for cruelty. Yeah, I think there wasn't real. the
0: sensitivity that we have now. We have a tremendously. We have a cultural sensitivity that, believe me, did not exist. One of the archetypal novels, I think, of the 50s was Peyton Place, Mm. which was subsequently made into a TV series with Mia Farrow and Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Parkins, and it was iconic. But if you go back and read the book, which, like Valley of the Dolls, was written a decade prior to the movie, um, it's rough. It's really rough like it's hard to think oh my god this was a national bestseller it's so there's everything in it incest sadism it's just terrible and then valley of the dolls is so sad and it's not like it has a happy ending or anything and then obviously the movie is just an orgy of camp it's brilliant <laughs> and you get to see the beauty of sharon tate the lost sharon mm. tate because i read page and place when i was a
1: teenager and i definitely i mean i Again, I should go back because I remember it, but that I remember awful women having the most dreadful time over and over and over again, and the violence of it and poverty and class being so limiting and destructive. but I do remember it being very, very sexy. <laughs> I think that was what got my attention,
0: yeah, I mean, they sanitized it when they made a movie out of that, the one with lana turner and but the book was like shocking, I agree with you, it was. It's like women getting a raw deal, but men getting a raw deal. Everyone was getting a horrible raw deal.
1: In Eccentric Glamour, you talk about being um, one of Manhattan's premier Queen Elizabeth II impersonators. And I was wondering (laughs) whether you'd read that book by Craig Brown called Mom Darling, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, You know, I have a copy of it and I've dipped into it. And I love Craig Brown. His parodies are absolutely genius because I... One of my ways that I stay in touch with my my British ness is I have a subscription to Private Eye, so uh-huh. I get to read Craig Brown's, as told to columns, which eighty percent of the time I know who he's talking about. So he's really great. So um no, but I haven't read the whole thing properly. Have you read it?
1: I I did. I found it so funny, and it just gets kind of more and more and more hyperbolic. But also. I think he does a really smart thing where she is so awful and so easy to laugh at and be horrified by. And then he reminds you that in spite of everything and all of her great privilege, she is so, so vulnerable. I also recently read his Beatles book and I was wondering if you'd come across that as a
0: reader of music biographies. Um, no, I should read that because I, I think he looks at everything through a funny lens that I love. And so is it good?
1: I did enjoy it very much. and I learned a lot um but I'd love to hear more about music books that you've loved tell me about the Hendrix one because I know almost nothing about Hendrix other than the very obvious things
0: it's interesting and I am so old that I actually went to see Jimi Hendrix perform in 1970 at the the Isle of Wight festival me and all my friends in Reading we packed ourselves onto the ferry and off we went to the Isle of Wight because Jimi Hendrix was like all we cared about like his music had such a huge impact on my particular group of friends, and to see him, you know, kicking into Voodoo <laughs> Child, we were just dying, it was so great, and then he died, like, I think a couple of months later, so I've always had a fascination with him, and I love his androgyny, his velvet flowers, you know, he he was very proto with that, he was just a fascinating guy, who was absolutely brilliant, had a terrible difficult childhood my god it's again quite harrowing and then again like herring a short life so we don't have to slog through the the boring years it's all happening and i just read that one on david bailey david oh. bailey's new memoir um it's really great i guess 60s things that kind of have a fascination for me because i was a teenager so what now all these people are getting old long in the tooth and they're burbling on and it's fascinating for me to read them because I remember them when they were young and you know a little maybe a little bit older than me I was born in 1952 but I was a teenager in the 60s so I was very into all the culture that was going on.
1: It's so interesting isn't it as well I think how even when someone's written a memoir they're still an unreliable narrator I'm always really curious about how something is remembered and how often someone might see a photo and think oh of course that was that night but you know we're still always editing and smoothing things over and replaying things
0: well it's very unusual I think one of the reasons I read a lot of football or autobiographies the ones from the 80s or 70s is because they were prepared to reveal their more ghastly traits Whereas now I think there's tremendous pressure on anyone writing their own, their autobiography is to sort of package themselves as some kind of paragon, which is a boring and b not true. You know, so when you read one where somebody's just like, and then I, you know, I did this and I did that and I hurt a lot of people and I got somebody pregnant and then didn't give them any child support like you know stuff like that you think oh well at least I'm reading here's somebody who's being honest about the ghastly things that they did today I think it's hard to do that because people say oh, I'm not reading that they're not a nice person you know mm. we have a need in this day and age to see people as um somehow heroic and wonderful and perfect which you know we're all flawed Like um, Brian Jones, he just seems like such a difficult person. My God, I just, I read a biography of him uh, during COVID. I've read so many during COVID. And um, you just think, oh my God, no wonder they tried to get him out of the band. He was just so (laughs) difficult and self-sabotaging and ultimately very poignant. And, you know, he's the one that kind of started all that. Wearing your mum's fur coat and a big hat and everything, I think him and Jimi Hendrix, kind of, it's Keith Richards kind of got that from Brian Jones. Really, Brian Jones was the truly batty person, but he he hurt, he trampled on a lot of people on the way and hurt a lot of people. But it's unusual to be have that all unfurled. I guess mm-hmm. only in a in a biography as opposed to an autobiography.
1: Because I suppose you wonder what the biographer's motives are. It's written out of academic curiosity or revenge or you go in as a fan and then you find out all these things about your idol that you're writing about and just think,
0: oh, no. You know, I was in London during punk. You know, I'm very comfortable with people being not so nice all the time. Like... um, uh, Viv Albertine's biography. Have you read that? Oh, I love her books. Autobiography, sorry, autobiography. Um, yeah, wasn't it great? Something I think about constantly
1: is I think it must be pre-slits. And she's learned, she's teaching herself how to play guitar in a bedsit, and I cannot remember Life who it in is. Bed. <laughs> and they like they this her neighbor like comes up, and it's like, Look, Viv, I'm sure you're good at something, but it's not <laughs> this. Please stop
0: this. Yeah. I found that I've recommended that book to a lot of people. I sent it to my niece. Um, I thought, look at what these girls accomplished without any encouragement. In fact, the opposite of encouragement. People spitting at them, throwing things at them, and they just went for it. And I remember girls like that in the 70s in London. And the idea that anyone was pushing them around is a joke. They were pushing, if anyone was doing the pushing. And... You know, poor Ariella up, Arielle. She was incredible. I met her and interviewed her once, and uh, just the toughness um, was is so unusual. And they don't didn't have a victim mentality at all. Yeah. They were just like abrasive. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a great read. I thoroughly recommend that book. What was it called? It was called Boys, Clothes, Sex. It's behind me, something. I
1: think. Is it clothes, clothes, clothes? Music, music, music. Boys, boys, boys.
0: Yes. <laughs> well remembered.
1: <laughs> There's a book I love, and I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, it's uh, Cherry Curry's autobiography, Neon Angel, that she wrote about her time in the Runaways. And if you've not read it, I think if you love um, Viv
0: Albertine's book, you might love that I'm book. I'm going to write it down. Cherry Curry. She was sort of after me living in, because I moved to LA and in the, in the, I missed certain thingies of pop culture.
1: Are there any, I'd love to know about any LA books that you love or books about California, novels or nonfiction or anything?
0: Um, I've read most of those Eve Babbitt's books. I love Joan that. Joan Do you love Eve Babbitt's? I do. Do you not? Yes, <laughs> totally. No, you, you reacted very positively. So, um, no, it's nice that she's gotten a lot of recognition now. I lived in LA from 1977 to 1985, And it was a period when it was sort of a forgotten place that people didn't really go to. And it was actually kind of great, great place to be young. They had a punk scene there. The new romantic scene was actually quite big in L.A. So I had a really fun, I was 25, so late 20s, early 30s. And that was kind of where I kind of came of age, was in L.A. during that period when it was dusty and kind of everyone thought it was really naff and people didn't go there. And the movie industry was reinventing itself, you know? I've read a lot of great books about reading one about Sue Mengers.
1: Oh, You know Sue Mengers?
0: She was this super tough agent that had big air hair and was very abrasive and big glasses, 70s, 80s. She was Faye Dunaway's agent and Robert, you know, Robert Evans and her were besties. And she was around the period of like Chinatown, um, Coppola, all those directors in the 70s that were kind of reinventing, what movies could be? It was a very creative time for movies, and Sue Mengers was an agent then. She used to wear a lot of Zandra Rhodes dresses, which you know I love her for because I love Sandra. She's a great English fashion icon. I'm gonna have a hell of a sense of theatre to pull that off. Yeah, well, Sue Mengers, I think you would be very amused by her. Like, um, like she would walk. She anything came out of her mouth. She walked into a party. And she looked around and she said, wow, this is Schindler's B-list. <laughs> you know, like she would just say the most appalling things and get away with it. And there's a great book I just read about, The Making of Chinatown, um, which focuses on Roman Polanski and Robert Town, the screenwriter, and um, Robert Evans as well, who was a producer. So it focuses on them and Jack Nicholson, who was obviously made that film, really. Um, and how it came together and the cocaine and the madness and the 70s of LA and Roman Polanski barely recovering from you know or never recovering essentially probably from the from the Manson horror so. A film of a book
1: that I loved in lockdown so much was Robert Evans The Kid Stays in the Picture.
0: When The Kid Stays in the Picture came out we did launches at Barney's oh, wow. I was, was creative director of Barney's at that time and and Robert Evans came we had all his clothes access to his memorabilia made windows about him and and he was just like something from another planet so suave so groovy even in his late 70s um, with his suits perfectly tailored and dark glasses and the hair and everything and his voice and Because I don't know if you ever listened to the book on tape, actually Robert Evans reads it. So, no, that was an interesting period of rule breaking in Hollywood when they were trying to reinvent the system.
1: I mean, what I was really surprised by the way, like The Godfather. I had no idea that it was sort of the way that books were kind of bought by studios, even before they existed as books, really. It was very much all kind of almost written that
0: there's going to be a huge movie oh totally you know when he made Rosemary's Baby the guy who produced it mortgaged his house to buy the rights to the book by Ira Levin you know those things were like weird serendipitous projects that ended up actually happening it wasn't uh you know it was just a function of how resilient people could be like Keith Haring um I love that story in The Kid Stays in the Picture where Frank Sinatra tells Mia Farrow, she has to quit Rosemary's Baby. He's sick of her spending all her time on the set and you have to leave and she's distraught and she's gonna quit the, the movie. And Robert Evans to her, says, so oh, come with me and shows her the rushes of the day before and says, look how incredible you are. You are going to get nominated for an Academy Award. You're gonna win Academy Award and like, She just walked out of the meeting and divorced Frank Sinatra and got back on the set. Like, um, it's kind of like wicked. I know. The way things unfolded at that time. It's like live
1: myth making. I mean, that could change the names, and that's the scene in the Valley of the Dolls. Have you seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Is that the Russ Meyer film? Yeah. A while ago. I just remember a lot of tits. (laughs)
0: And uh, do you remember the lesbian dress designer? But I, I mentioned her because I used to be friendly with her when I lived in L.A. Oh. She was really great. And um, you'd see, I'd see Russ Meyer around all the time. And Kitten Natividad, his wife, used to strip at this strip club that me and my friends would go to because you could get in for free and the drinks were cheap. And there was Kitten Natividad who was married to Russ Meyer. That whole world has gone, that sexploitation exploitation. World, I guess now porn is so ubiquitous on the internet that people don't need Ross Meyer movies, which is kind of sad. I think
1: so. That the camp and fun and theatre has has gone out of it because those films were truly ridiculous.
0: Well, maybe it's migrated to rap. When you think about Cardi B and mm. Megan Thee Stallion. You know, so I, when I watch those videos, I think, "Wow, Russ Meyer would love this." Never thought of
1: that, but that's so true. Because I think all the time about WAP and the, just the, the hyperbolic genius of it, the writing, the jokes, the consistency—it's sort of it's magnificent. It's like it's like Monty Python, but for
0: sex. Completely and very, ultimately, very celebratory.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: We'll be back to Simon soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez. This is Mendez's autobiographical debut novel, The Story of Jesse, who grows up as Jehovah's Witness with no room to express his sexuality until he runs away to London when he's 17 and finds solace in sex work and eventually love. Rainbow Milk is a powerful, lyrical and beautifully written story about identity, violence and tenderness. It's out now in paperback and published by Dialogue Books. Now, back to Simon. I wanted to ask you about fashion in fiction. Any characters in novels where you love their look, you love their style, they have inspired you at some point, one way or another, or alternatively, anyone in a novel whose dress sense has appalled you so that you would like to sort them out and
0: dress them? The first thing that springs to mind is um, Iris Murdoch, because she is weirdly obsessed with clothes. And you wouldn't think so, because you think of her as being an academic blue stocking, you know, with a bowl haircut. But if you look at old pictures of her, and then in in her books, um, the clothes are just referred to in a very throwaway way, like Angela entered the room wearing a bright emerald green dress or an emerald green dress. It's all very pared down, but you Mm. visualize it immediately. And then I think she had an ambivalent relationship with fashion because in one of her books, The Flight from the Enchanter, I don't know if you've ever read that one. That one's great. Typical existentialist Iris Murdoch stuff where everything is contingent and everything flies all over the place, but there's a dressmaker in it and she makes clothes for people. And you can tell like um Iris Murdoch has a fascination with fashion but also is repelled by it and I think that's why she has the dressmaker jump out of a window I didn't ruin it for you that's not the denouement of the book I actually proposed to a publisher doing a book about Irish Murdoch's how she uses fashion in her books because it's sort of very unexpected because you wouldn't think that she would be but there's constant references to clothes but in the most pared down simple way and you know you've it enables you to visualize it.
1: I would pay so much money to read that. Please, I'm gonna I'll set up a publishing company. It'll be you and me, it'll sell two copies. <laughs> but if we do like, oh gosh, who is who am um, I thinking? Not Rizzoli or Tash Chesh- you know, there's massive like you know that like when Kim Kardashian didn't Kim Kardashian do a book that was like fifty grand. We'll do that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: This is the opposite of what this podcast is supposed to be, which is you telling me about books. But I wanted to show you this book, which I love, and I think it might be out of print, and I don't know if you've ever come across it, but I think you might really adore it because it's um, all about fashion in literature in the 20th century, but it's got everything oh, from like
0: Julie Burchill to George Orwell. How fab. Oh, I'm going to make, um, see, I'm writing it down. I love your recommendations. Fashion writing. When I'm reading a book, even if it was Orwell or something, I'd always be on the lookout for, like wear clothes rear their head because that's, that was my, always my, obsession i mean i think growing up in the 1950s england was very threadbare we still had rash fat you know clothing coupons and all that shit that when the mod revolution came along and there were clothes where you could look neat and you didn't have to look threadbare um you know that was what drove the sort of mod ideology and you could buy something on friday with your earnings from the bottle top factory you know um, blah, 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 and that replenishing and newness and freshness, you have to look fresh, and neat and tidy. Like, I, not that I look so tidy, but no, I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about clothes, but I often wonder if it was genetic because my mom was exactly the same way. She always um, worked multiple jobs. She had an incredible work ethic. And part of it was because she liked to buy herself little things. She didn't look like any of the other women in our street. She was always a bit done up and it, and it was like second nature to her. She didn't even, she never said, Oh, does my bum look big in this? Should I wear this? Blah, blah, blah. She didn't confer with anybody. She was just obsessed with, you know, she would wear white skirts, which are not very practical. You know, Um, she would get furious if she brushed up against a dirty car and got dust on her skirt. So I think I inherited that from my mom. It was like, um, It was sort of about vanity, but vanity as a sort of empowering force, like vanity as being a creative force. You know, you pull yourself together, you get your look together and you feel better and other people feel better and they react to you differently. It's an important message during COVID, I think. One has to pull oneself together and a little pull a little outfit together, it does you good. I was thinking about, you know, your visual
1: work at Barney's. I've always thought that, you know, those fabulous department stores, not everyone in the world can necessarily rush into Barney's.
0: Especially since it went bust in February. Oh, God. So they really can't rush into it now, darling, but thank no. you. <laughs> well, I, It's I, not I, funny, a lot of people lost their jobs, me included, but it's tragic. So. But I'm anyway, sorry. carry on. I went- No, I know it was expensive. I'm not going to argue with that. But it, you know, to to see the display was
1: enough to boost morale and boost spirits. I I forgotten. I was in New York towards the end of last year, around November, and I went to Barney's because I, it was sort of where I wanted to go the very first time I went, and it was such a different experience, and it it broke my heart. It was the that it was such a happy space.
0: No, Barney's was it represented a lot in the culture. It was constantly referred to. In movies, you know, if some character was becoming, not you know, richer or too big for their boots or or very self-absorbed, <laughs> they'd often shove a Barney's bag in the, in their arm in a film. You know, in Will and Grace, it's constant reference to Barney's. Um, so I was lucky. I mean, I got my job there in 1985, and I was there until involved in various capacities over those decades. So that was my. That was my family. That was my life, was involvement in that store. Um, you know, that, I think retail has always been a big part of my life. I failed the 11 plus, so I left school at 16. And then that summer, I got a job in the bottle top factory, and, which I referred to earlier. I was going to say, uh, that wasn't a comic example. You have really worked in a bottle top factory. Yeah, because that's what people did. You worked in a factory, and then you took your money, and you, you know, I would go up to Carnaby Street and try and find something groovy to wear and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I clawed my way back into the system and went to college. Um, You know, I got my A-levels and went to college. I was able to see what, I looked at life from both sides, you know, and I consider myself very lucky to have had both perspectives of um, thinking, oh shit, I'm gonna end up growing old at the bottle top factory. But then I discovered retail and um, I thought, well, this is nice. You can you get dressed up every day. You go somewhere. It's like theater. Everyone seems to be in a good mood. You know, it didn't have the repetitive nature of factory work, which I'd done a lot of when I was a teenager, a lot of different factories in Reading, because I grew up in Reading. So retail was like, are you being served? You know, I got a job at John Lewis in Reading. And it was, when I watched Are You Being Served? It was like, a documentary of <laughs> our lives. If we actually said that to customers, are you being served? And um, there were so many characters there who were like Mrs. Slocum. And I used to tell people like, if they weren't sure what to do or they were going through a rough patch, get a job in retail. You know, and I always say, if Virginia Woolf had gotten a job, you know, in Harrods on the food counter, even two days a week, <laughs> it would have done her the world of good. You get out there, you meet other people, you know, you see that life is not just so dismal i think it's an antidepressant retail but now of course it's hard what to recommend because all the factories close so i can't recommend that anymore and then retail is sort of staggering towards something or other that's doesn't seem to be you could always you know like in auntie mame you know when she loses her money she gets a job selling roller skates at macy's there was always this fallback okay we'll just get a job and Um, sort of groovy shop until you figure out what you want to do. And now that seems to be dwindling as a bolt hole. It's no longer the conceptual bolt hole that it used to be.
1: But as a dramatic device as well as thinking about how good it is to have if you've got a, a shop in a book or a film or, or on TV. It's such a great and instant way to introduce characters and have them stay as long or leave as quickly as you need them to. Right,
0: absolutely. I mean that sort of scruples is ultimately a retail story. And then um didn't um that comedian write a book called Shop Girl? Um what's his name? Steve oh, Martin. Steve Martin. Martin. Did you read that? Did
1: I didn't read that. Did you read it?
0: Yes. Or did you like it? Was it funny? It was very poignant and very sweet. On um, the side of him that, you know, you don't see much. Well, you see, I guess you see it indirectly in his comedy, but I enjoyed it.
1: Oh, I should read it. I guess that kind of brings us back to Eve Babbitt's. There's a bit in, it might be in Black Swans that I love where she talks about, I, I suspect, reading between the lines. I imagine Eve was being drunk and obnoxious and possibly a little bit forlorn, But she says <laughs> something, I think, about having, maybe having a crack at Steve Martin. He was having none of it. And she says something like, the trouble with Steve Martin is he never really had a sense of humour.
0: Yeah, she's naughty. (laughs) I'm so glad she's um, getting her props. Very good at capturing that part at that time in L.A., um, when it was kind of a bit raggedy and, you know, forgotten.
1: I just watched that documentary about Laurel Canyon and that sort of that period of time, the the monkeys just keep showing up.
0: Well, Keith Haring was obsessed with Davy Jones. He had a... That was when an early sort of gay moment for him was a fixation with Davy Jones of the Monkees. And, uh, but there's lots about it in my book. Isn't that cheesy? I have it I just <laughs> <laughs> Snap. <laughs> Remember I was been in retail for 40 years. So I'm terribly, I probably over promote because I know how hard it is to sell anything to people. Like the publishers always say to me, you're so cooperative and you're very, and I said, cause I know, it's not easy to sell stuff to people. You really have to have some conviction, otherwise you don't. It doesn't work. It's so
1: true, and it's that sort of mentioning it and realizing that you know you one can't be a sort of awkward teenager about it. We've oh, done a book. You've really, got I think to... it's
0: very hard for writers. Writers, that, you know, try to be diffident and enigmatic and not be seen as being shilling and handling and shoving their work down people's throat, but. Really, you know, if, if you don't mention it to people, there's a strong possibility that nobody else will. Yeah. You know, you have, You've know, got to be more um, Keith. I sure yes, exactly. Are there any New York books that you really, really love? I live in this fabulous building downtown, this old apartment building. We call it the downtown Dakota because it's like creepy looking old pre-war apartment building. And I was reading um, Dawn Powell, A Time to be Born, right? So there I am reading it thinking, wow, she's such a great writer. And she I know Ernest Hemingway, she was his favourite writer, blah, blah, blah. She's major. Time to be Born, highly recommended. And I found out she used to live downstairs. No, amazing. In our building. And she would put an aquarium in the middle of her room and fill it with gin and cocktails and things. And then she would um dole out cocktails to people have all her writer friends over and um what a ghost to have that's so cool that's a good book about new york and it's weirdly everything in it sort of strangely relevant to today like you know the the, do you remember
1: it at all the one i remember the most is the locusts have no king but i have read that i did have i must have a reread because i do remember just being Gripped in a real sort of, it made me feel like a teenager, but I was probably well. Much the time interested. to be
0: born focuses on these two women that went to college together, and one of them is kind of, um uh, sort of destined for great and greatness and money and fame, and the other one is sort of more like in her shadow a little bit. And one day, the one who's in the shadow wakes up and she realizes, oh, I know what I've been doing wrong all these years. She the very successful one is kind of abrasive and pushy and always grabbing spotlight. And I, I, the one in the shadow have been folksy and available. That's been my mistake. I've been folksy and available. And the other one has been remote and um, hard to get to, you know, like, so um, it's full of all these weird insights like that. that are like, shit, that's, you could apply that to so many people today who are, and you know, I thought, oh God, that's why I haven't had a bestseller on the New York Times. I'm too folksy and available. I was just thinking, this is so depressing. That folksy and you're available. Folksy available. That be I epitaph. bet you're folksy and available. I'm very folksy and available. Ooh. <laughs> but we love being folksy and available, right?
1: We have fun. We have a very nice time. I just came up with a half-baked theory about Hemingway and thought, oh, of course, you know, he loved Dawn Pearl because she's, you know, just so, so brilliant and, you know, what a magnificent writer and all the rest of it. And I thought, she's really good
0: at booze. Really, really, really good at writing booze. That's what Hemingway liked, wasn't it? Probably, yes. I mean, I read that book, The Road to Echo Spring, all about writers who died of al- or suffered with alcoholism. There's like Cheever, Tennessee Williams, Hemingway. And it's such a profoundly depressing book. But, you know, when you read that book, you think... Oh, my God, they really were addicted to booze. So, yes, that's probably the booze was the connection there. Well spotted.
1: <laughs> and we could uh, maybe as the um, the follow up to um, Fashion in Iris Murdoch, that can be, um, be the Dawn Pole and Ernest Hemingway cocktail book. Simon, I cannot thank you enough. It has been such a joy and a pleasure and an honour. I'm delighted. I'll be folksy and available on your behalf. <laughs>
0: All right, a big kiss. Thank you for having
1: me. Huge thanks to Simon. Keith Haring, Lives of the Artists, is out now and published by Lawrence King. It's a book about a life that was cut far too short, but it's joyous. A really gorgeous gateway introduction to 20th century art for anyone who's curious about that world. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. You can follow us on social media at YBooked, And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make me incredibly happy if you could leave us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Simon on acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from PG Woodhouse. There is no surer foundation for a beautiful friendship than a mutual taste in literature. See you next time.